Welcome to Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Hey there, friends, patrons, and fellow mythical astronomers. It's me, LML. And I'm back. I'm living in a different state, and most everything in my life, nay, everything in my life, has gone topsy-turvy, inside out, upside down, all that stuff in the last two months. But now I have my computer equipment set up again, and I'm ready to talk about what happened in the last few episodes of Season 8 of HBO's Game of Thrones. Or, more specifically, what we really want to talk about is what the end of the show version of the Ice and Fire story means for the ending that George R.R. Martin will give us in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. Tiwau and Ados, as they're known. And yes, Ados, that's what we're going with. Ados, because I'm a child of the 80s and I remember DOS. Anyways, now as you guys know, Mythical Astronomy has always been a podcast centered around the books. So, of course, we will be more interested in what the show ending means for the books as opposed to analyzing the show ending itself. The show ending may have been disappointing to many, especially in regards to the conclusion of the more magic-driven storylines such as the White Walkers, Bran and the Weirwoods, the Azorahai Reborn, Prince That Was Promised stuff, a few other things. But there is still a lot we can learn about the kinds of things that could happen in the books. Oh, yes. The key thing to remember is that the show very consistently simplifies and minimizes anything having to do with magic in the original story. For example, in the show, only Bran is a skin changer, as opposed to all of the Stark children being skin changers in the books. And Jon's resurrection in the books will surely involve a lot more magic than what we saw in the show. On the TV show, the others invaded Westeros without ever really causing a new long night where the sun is hidden for an extended period of time, But in the books, I think we should expect a real long night and some sort of mechanism to cause it. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe moon meteor strike. Uh... Anyways, keeping the basic tendency of the show to simplify magic in mind, we can look at the elements at play in the various climactic scenes from the show and consider what slightly more complex thing George might be planning to do with those same elements in the last couple of books. To give you an example of the kind of thing that we're looking to do here, let's consider John's resurrection. In terms of the books, it's been heavily foreshadowed to the point of being the collective headcanon of many a Song of Ice and Fire readers that John's spirit will be temporarily stored inside the body of his aptly named wolf, Ghost, before being returned to his body, which will of course need to be resurrected through some sort of powerful magic. George gives us an entire dissertation on skin changer magic mechanics in the prologue of A Dance with Dragons through the eyes of the wildling skin changer Vermeer Sixkins, including what is called Second Life, the fact that a skin changer's spirit goes into his primary animal upon death. When John dies, reaching out for Ghost at the end of that same book, we are surely supposed to think back to the prologue and realize that John's spirit should have a few days to chill inside the body of his wolf before it begins to be permanently subsumed into the wolf spirit. That all makes a ton of sense. It's basically been spelled out for us in A Dance with Dragons. But think about how this played out on the show. John wasn't a skin changer on the show, but just a guy with a really cool pet. So what we got was Ghost simply sitting faithfully by John's side as he came back from the dead. The camera lingered a bit on Ghost before John awoke. Perhaps a chance for us book readers to think about all of this and know that in the books, John's spirit would be inside that white wolf with the knowing red eyes. 
But really, that's about it. Even Melisandre's magic, which seems to have been what brought John back, was pretty tame. I mean, I enjoy Carissa's chanting and praying in High Valerian as much as anyone, and I always like a good salon-style hair-washing, but I have to think that in the books, a bit more magical fireworks will be involved, right? We can see all the elements in place, though. Dead John, Melisandre, a few loyal Night's Watch allies, and Ghost. And even though the TV show didn't do much with those particular elements, it's not hard to see a few cool ways that George might use those pieces that would be consistent with the Song of Ice and Fire. Plus, Shireen and Selyse, and Patchface for that matter, are hanging around at the wall too, so that whole dark affair could get wrapped up in this as well. That brings me to the Winterfell Godswood at the end of episode 3 of the final season of the show. An episode which shall live in infamy, where we had in place basically all of the best magical elements in the story. The White Walkers and the Army of the Dead. The Dragons. John and Danny riding the dragons. Bran at the height of his weirwood powers. Lots of Valyrian steel and dragonglass. And even stuff we haven't seen exactly in the books, such as the Night King and the Whited Viserion. What the show did with all this, to me, was... Well, stretching the word underwhelming to its furthest limits. I mean, like many of you, I was highly unsatisfied with the idea that defeating the White Walkers really just came down to stabbing them with Valyrian steel. Bran's weirwood powers didn't really seem to do much at all. And in the end, it's kind of hard to see how the dragons played much of a role in the endgame either. Most of all, the White Walker connection to the weirwoods was basically left by the wayside, and they were, in the end, reduced to the mindless ice demons that we've all spent years and years, literally more than a decade, saying that, you know, the others couldn't just be mindless ice demons. They, they have to be something more. There's got to be something more to it, right? Some sort of baby swap or a pact or something about the Stark's connection to the others, a sin that has to be atoned for. Nope. Nope. None of that. But hey, look. This isn't a gripe session, and we don't need to dwell on any of that, because what we're actually here to talk about are all the fun things that George R.R. R. Martin might have planned with White Walkers and dragons in the Winterfell Godswood. I'm not disappointed. Who's disappointed? So here's where I bring up those three End of Ice and Fire videos that I did before the climactic Episode 3 battle at Winterfell. You know, the ones that made mm, a bit too much out of the corpse spiral thing on the wall from episode one, and predicted a bunch of cool stuff involving the Night King and Bran and burning the Weirwood Net that didn't happen. Well, about all that. Obviously, my theory was kind of left at the altar in the show version. I mean, again, all the elements were in place in the Godswood there. Bran had lured the Night King and the White Walkers into the Godswood as a trap, just like we talked about. The dragons and the Azor High people were looking close by with fire. I mean, all we needed was a conflagration to engulf Bran, the Night King, and the Heart Tree. Cut scene, cut episode, fade to black. We don't know what happened. A week of mystery, then some shenanigans in the Weirwood Net. Maybe Bran is tied up at that, that frozen Weirwood tree where the Night King was made. And Oh, I'm sorry, I'm writing fan fiction again. No, none of that, none of that. Uh, we all have to live with Space Jam Arya instead, flying through the air. Stabbing Night King in the belly. It was a cool stunt, and no shame if you liked it. I mean, I cheered when I watched it live, full disclosure. 
because, yeah, I mean, it was cool. It was really exciting. Uh, but like I said a moment ago, I think the primary disappointment that sort of set in with this ending is not that the stunt was cheesy, which, I mean, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, depends on your opinion, or that Arya is an unsuitable warrior to defeat the White Walkers or even the Night King. She definitely is, as much as anybody can be, qualified to kill the others. Um, she's been trained to be a warrior all her life. She's a Stark, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, it's not even that people's theories didn't come true. I mean, obviously mine didn't come true. But, I mean, if you if you craft theories in this fandom, you're pretty used to your theories not coming true or not working out. So I don't think that's why a lot of people were disappointed with the endings because everybody had a theory. That's not the case. Rather, the disappointment really does come down to the idea that defeating the White Walkers is just a simple matter of stabbing them with, with dragon steel or valerian steel and that their connection to the Weirwoods and the Greenseer magic of the Children of the Forest was basically left unexplored. I mean, they hinted at it a couple seasons ago, but they did nothing with it, and it remained basically irrelevant. Um, so, I mean, the complexity of these connections between the White Walkers and the Weirwoods and the Children, they're strongly hinted at in the books we have so far, and surely they will be developed further in Wow and Ados, I have to think. And it was this lore that I was keying in on when I wrote the End of Ice and Fire series. And the basic premise of my thinking in these videos was that in book lore, like I said, it's strongly hinted at that the others, the White Walkers, come from the Weirwoods, and that their power may be connected to them as well. And when I say the Weirwoods, I'm also saying, you know, the Children of the Forest, the Green Seers, all that stuff. Now, the TV show lore fills in the blanks here by showing us that the children are responsible for the creation of the White Walkers, and they sort of personalize the idea by creating the Night King figure as a commander of the White Walkers, with his transformation, of course, coming at the hands of the children while tied to a weirwood tree. So here I am thinking that, although the show is probably simplifying and changing things a bit, the underlying White Walker-Weirwood connection seems to exist in both mediums. Therefore, the key to stopping the White Walkers should take into account their connection to the Weirwoods in both the books and the TV show. And there was Bran on the show talking about luring the Night King into the Godswood as a trap. It's a trap. A Weirwood trap, just like we've been talking about for like three years, to try to destroy him, perhaps with Dragonfire. Toasty! Then I got to thinking about Bran and all his book symbolism involving burning Bran's burning corn kings, baskets full of firewood that he gets carried around in, the fire of the gods, Bran's cauldron that raises the dead and has to be destroyed from the inside, and all that stuff. And it really seemed like the show was heading towards some sort of sacrificial destruction of the Weirwoods as a means to defeat the White Walkers. That, of course, did not happen. But it could have. And thanks to a couple of you who have commented to say that they wish it did. In the end, I really would have settled for anything more complex than, you know, simple magic knife stabbing. But hey, look, the only thing that matters now is what George might do here, and that's where I can salvage something from the wreckage of those three End Device and Fire videos. After all, what I was really doing was thinking that the TV show was tapping into book foreshadowing and symbolism that I was already catching on to anyway, and then highlighting the ways in which the book symbolism might foreshadow an interesting show ending. So even though the show didn't go there, the book foreshadowing, having to do with burning the Weirwoods and shutting down the Weirwood net, and the Weirwood-White Walker connection, well, it's still valid. And if we want to think about what George's version of some of these TV show endings might look like, 
Well, then this sort of book foreshadowing is exactly the sort of thing that we should be considering. If we think it's unlikely that George will end the White Walker threat with magic sword stabbing by itself, then we must go back to the book text to see what more it might involve. So here's what we're going to do. I already released the audio version of the first episode of the End of Ice and Fire series on the podcast feed, but I'm going to take that down and I'm going to give you all three episodes here, just to make sure those of you who don't do the YouTube can have all three in one place. The runtime of all three is about 49 minutes, and then I'll have some more commentary at the end to sort of translate the predictions that I was making for the show into book terms. For example, in these videos, I'm talking about needing to burn down the Night King's home weirwood tree, right? But in book terms, we'd be talking about either burning down the Isle of Faces or the more abstract concept of burning the weirwood net or shutting down the weirwood net as a whole in order to stop the others instead of the Night King, because in the books, there is no Night King yet. Yet. More broadly speaking, what I'll be doing is setting up my next few podcasts and videos in which we'll compare the elements of the TV show ending to the endgame foreshadowing that we've already seen in the books to try to get an idea of how George might try to land the plane. And that's going to lead to some very exciting questions. For instance, I predicted that the Weirwood Net needs to be shut down to stop the White Walkers, right? Well, the show didn't go there, but it did give us King Bran, which is a detail probably too big not to be the same in book canon. Most would seem to agree. But think about the idea of King Bran in book canon. Isn't that more like King Weirwood Net? The show simplified the idea of the Weirwood Net hive mind a bit, describing it basically as the sum total of the consciousness of all the three-eyed ravens who ever lived, combined, summed up, and inhabiting Bran's body. That is what became King, which could have been something interesting to explore for the show, but they, uh, I guess they were out of time or episodes or, or, or patience or something. But anyways, in the book canon, this is going to be a little more interesting. This could amount to the entire hive mind that we think of as the Weirwood Net inhabiting Bran's body in order to be king of Westeros. That begs the question, is the Weirwood Net hive mind no longer living inside the trees? Did something happen to the trees that the Weirwood Net hive mind couldn't live there anymore? Did it get shut down? Did it get burnt? <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. Well, that, that is a creepy ending worthy of George R.R. R. Martin, though. The Weirwood Net appears to die, but then we realize it's actually taken over Bran and become king. Anything along those lines could be very interesting, and could dovetail nicely with all the foreshadowing of the Weirwoods being burned to defeat the others that I was picking up on in those videos. Once we start thinking about the fate of Bran and the Weirwoods and the others, then we have to talk about John and Danny, and the confrontation between ice and fire, between others and dragons. We have to talk about the ancient stark connection to the others. You know, nothing too major. Of course, then, once you ask those questions, pretty soon you're barking up some very strange trees. For example, the books don't have a Night's King figure like the show does, as we mentioned. But then again, the book version of Euron is like some sort of Egyptian pharaoh-level megalomaniacal pirate wizard who's sucking down mushroom tea and bathing in the blood of priests from every religion known to man, and he seems to be rising to the top as the baddie of the final act of the books, so... As I've pointed out before, and as others have pointed out, TV show Night King stole a dragon, and Euron wants to steal a dragon. Maybe Viserion. 
And we all know that Book Euron seems to share the symbolism of the wider Knight's King archetype, which goes back to remote Westerosi history in the original Knight's King. TV show Euron died a very unimpressive death in King's Landing. But Book Euron is on an entirely different arc, to say the least. One that intersects with Daenerys, and involves a higher confluence of magic and evil, than pretty much anywhere else in A Song of Ice and Fire. So, we have to ask ourselves: how does Pirate Odin on Bad Acid Night King Euron Greyjoy fit into a George Martin version of the endgame that we just saw on TV? No, I don't just mean to imply interesting things for Euron. I do have some specific ideas about how this could play out in store for you. The same goes for King Bran, the others, John and Danny, and the rest of the magic-heavy plot lines. So, go ahead and listen to the audio of these three End of Ice and Fire vids if you haven't checked them out on YouTube already, or you can skip ahead about 49 minutes to the end to hear my closing thoughts on the series, and then I'll come back very soon with more detailed analysis of the various components of the endgame. Now, journey back, if you will, to a more innocent time. LML in 13. The End of Ice and Fire, Part 1. Hello there. My name is Lucifer Means Lightbringer, or LML for short, and I am known for analyzing the extensive use of symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire and sometimes HBO's Game of Thrones. During Episode 1 of Season 8, we saw a giant, horrifying symbol, which I believe spells out a large part of how this story will end, both in terms of the show and the books. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same ending in both books and show, because the books have extensive symbolic evidence that backs up the ending that I think the show is foreshadowing. Not only that, but this symbolic evidence from the books that I'm talking about will actually provide the context needed to understand why this is what has to happen. I'm going to give you the nuts and bolts of this theory first, here in part one, mostly based on material from the TV show, and then in subsequent videos, I'm going to show you how this ending has been spelled out many times in the books of A Song of Ice and Fire, through symbolism, of course. First of all, let's be clear. We're talking about poor dead Ned Umber and the other assorted body parts that were nailed to the wall of the last hearth in some sort of very creepy and grisly White Walker mandala. Let's review the basics. The corpse of young Ned Umber is pinned to the wall, and surrounding him are eight spiral arms of, well, arms and legs, hands and feet. When Lord Commander Dollar said, the famous bearded wildling Tormund Giantsbane, and the undead and armed with a flaming sword Beric Dondarrion approach a bit closer, dead Ned Umber's corpse begins to shriek, and opens up its eyes, which now burn with a familiar cold blue star fire of the White Walkers. Beric quickly stabs the whited corpse with his flaming sword, and as undead Ned Umber continues to scream, he and all the body parts on the wall catch fire. What began as a creepy White Walker corpse spiral with cold blue star eyes at the center transforms into a flaming spiral, somewhat reminiscent of the Targaryen three-headed dragon sigil. And the crowd goes straight to the internet, searching for and or writing comments and theories about what it all means. Pausing a moment to grieve for poor Ned Umber and all the people of Last Hearth who are now part of the Army of the Dead, I want to tell you that this giant symbol, for that is what it is, actually tells us just how to set the Umbers and everyone else enslaved in the Army of the Dead free from bondage. 
The basics are fairly straightforward, and it begins with recognizing that spiral design, which we've seen most notably in three places. In the Caverns of Dragonglass on Dragonstone, which has spirals and many other things etched or painted on the wall, including several White Walkers. We saw it in the spiral arms of the shape that the White Walkers made with the body parts of slain horses after the Fist of the First Men, very similar to what we see at Last Hearth. And most importantly, we see this spiral arm design at the place where Night King was created. That was in Season 6, Episode 5, when Bran uses the power of the Weirwoods to look into the past and sees our future Night King tied to a lone Weirwood tree, which is surrounded by eight spiral arms of obelisks made from dark stone. The children of the forest approach the captive and stab him with a dragonglass knife, embedding it in his chest. Then his eyes turn ice blue, and presto, he's the Night King. The multi-armed spiral design also appears a couple of other places too, but let's focus on that weirwood tree where Night King was created. Night King is the macabre artist, as Mansrader says, behind these corpse mandalas, if you will, and I'm using that term loosely. So it makes sense that Night King would be sort of fixated on the moment of his creation, or rather his transformation. The moment that he, against his will apparently, was transformed into some sort of ice demon king condemned to live forever, or at least until the right person stabs him with the right magic sword. Beric, who seems to intuitively get Night King, takes a look at the corpse spiral on the wall at the last hearth and says, It's a message from Night King. And that's what everyone's been trying to figure out the past few days. Well, the place to start is the place where Night King started, because that's what he's drawing with all these body parts. It's an overhead diagram of the weirwood tree and its spiral arms of obelisks. Think about it. That's what the spiral arm design means to Night King more than anything. His message must have something to do with that. We can guess right away that he's probably pissed off about being turned into Night King, so on some level, he's probably making this design out of corpses to say, I am coming to make corpses of you all because that is what I was created to do, at this place with the weirwood and the spiral arms. That is, after all, why the children turned this guy into Night King in the first place. In the HBO show canon, the children were losing the war against the first men who were cutting down the weirwoods. Night King was created to kill humans. But somehow, the children apparently lost the ability to control or contain Night King and his armies of white walkers and whites. And we know that the children actually turned around and allied with the remaining first men to defeat the white walkers and end the long night. The mythology surrounding this in the books is a little more complex, but it's basically the same, with the exception that instead of some guy called Night King, we're simply told of the rise of the White Walkers, and that some of this is implied as opposed to spelled out. The important thing is that in show canon, Night King was created to kill humans, and he was created at that weirwood surrounded by eight spiral arms of standing stones. Now he recreates that spiral with the body parts of his victims. That kind of makes sense on a basic level, right? A fun wordplay note here. These spiral arms of the design on the wall at Last Hearth are made of the bloody limbs of dead people. But instead of thinking of body limbs, think tree limbs. And then recall that the weirwood leaves are usually described in the books as looking like bloody hands. And yes, there are actually bloody hands included in the Last Hearth corpse spiral design. This is simply another layer of symbolism, however gruesome, which adds to the idea that Night King's corpse spirals are saying something about that place with the weirwood tree and the spiral arms of obelisks where he was transformed. So you got all that. 
But there's more to this spiral arm symbol at Last Hearth, because we don't just get Night King's icy corpse rendering of his home tree. We also see this entire shape lit on fire with a flaming sword. From ice to fire, what does this part mean? Well, we see an overhead shot of the Night King tree and the spiral arms of Standing Stones two different times in two very different circumstances. Once in the ancient past, when the ground is lush and green, with the canopy of the weirwood leaves as red as blood and fire. And then once in the present, albeit on the astral plane, where everything is covered in snow, and the now leafless and possibly dead weirwood tree hunches and crouches, its limbs weighed down by snow and ice. This transformation would seem to reflect the growing power of the White Walkers, and one wonders if Night King might have a special connection to this tree in particular. The freezing over of the weirwood seems to mirror the icy transformation of Night King himself, I would say. So, when we look at the corpse spiral on the wall at Last Hearth, we are surely supposed to see a diagram of the Night King tree and those spiral arms of standing stones, like I said. But more specifically, I think that this is a diagram of the Night King weirwood after it's been frozen over, because the spiral diagram here at Last Hearth is made of corpses, and Dead Ned Umber animates with the cold blue magic of the White Walkers when the crew arrives. Seems like a pretty good reflection of how the Night King tree looks now. It's a pretty good reflection of how the Night King tree looks now. And when Bran sees the frozen Night King tree in the Weirwood Vision, it is actually surrounded by the army of the dead, surrounded by corpses. In fact, one might even see the ice-blue-eyed Ned Umber pinned to the wall at the center of the spiral where the Weirwood tree would be, as a stand-in for Night King himself, who was pinned to the Weirwood tree at the center of the stone spiral and given those very same sort of ice-blue eyes. And then on the rewatch of this episode, I noticed that Tormund is actually saying, we just have to hope the Night King doesn't come first, at the moment that the whited corpse of Ned Umber wakes up with his shriek cutting off Tormund mid-sentence. In other words, this grisly spiral shape at Last Hearth is a diagram of the Night King Weirwood tree, but it's showing us Night King in power, with ice and death spiraling out from him and that weirwood tree and taking over everything. This strongly implies Night King's power is tied to that frozen weirwood, something that the book suggests is true of the White Walkers in a general sense, that their power is tied to the weirwoods. And by the way, the full name of the White Walkers in the books is The White Walkers of the Wood. So, our heroes behold this horrific symbol of Night King's frozen tree and his terrifying power, and then we know what happens next. Thinking quickly, Beric stabs it with the flaming sword, clearing out the White Walker magic, and creating a lovely symbol of the Targaryen dragon in its place. At least many think it resembles that sigil, and I tend to agree. The flaming sword is an unmistakable symbol of Lightbringer, of course. And here it is stabbing a representation of Night King's tree, and probably Night King himself. Stabbing Night King with Lightbringer has always seemed like the thing to do. But we have to consider the weirwood angle here, which hints at a deeper mystery. What's being suggested here, I think, is more than just killing Night King, but rather setting fire to the weirwoods. Either setting fire to his personal tree, or more likely, to the weirwood net as a whole. We could be talking about a total shutdown here, which may be the only way to stop Night King. And yes, Bran is tied to the weirwood net and will surely have to die to sacrifice himself, if defeating Night King does indeed require a total shutdown of the weirwood net. We can't help but notice that the dead boy in the center of the corpse spiral is named Ned, 
a Stark name. I suggested earlier that Ned Umber might be standing in for Night King, tied to the diagram where the tree would be, as he was, but it could also foreshadow Bran, a boy lord with a Stark name, just like Ned Umber, burning inside the Weirwoods along with Night King. I personally don't see how it could be any other way if the Weirwoods are to burn, because Bran is inextricably linked to the Weirwoods. It's very sad, of course, but Bran has always been slated for heroic martyrdom, in my opinion. There's actually so much foreshadowing of Bran burning in some way that I have an entire episode of the Weirwood Compendium called A Burning Brandon, which I actually wrote several years ago. From Hodor carrying Bran around in a basket that used to be used to carry firewood, gulp, to the phonetic connection of Bran's name to the Norse word brander, which means both burning brand and flaming sword, there's quite a lot pointing to a spectacular and heroic sort of flame-out for young Brandon Stark, the summer child. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Before we talk of Bran and shutting down the Weirwood net, and before we get into the deep connections between the White Walkers and the Weirwoods, I want to show you that Azor High setting the Weirwoods on fire with a flaming sword is an idea that is expressed in the books many times. That's what makes this such a fun theory for me. Last week, we all saw Beric stab a symbol of Night King's frozen tree with a flaming sword. And then I realized that I had been documenting that exact sequence for years already. All such scenes with symbolic depictions of Lightbringer stabbing or burning weirwoods are surrounded by talk of the Long Night and symbolism tied to the Long Night, as well as to Azor High, Lightbringer, and Night King. And that, of course, suggests that burning weirwoods has something to do with Zora High, Lightbringer, and ending the long night. And that's what we'll look at in part two, scenes from the book that use symbolism to depict Azor High burning weirwoods to destroy the White Walkers and end the long night. All right, well, that was part one of the End of Ice and Fire series. It very focused on the show. Not a lot of book content there. Uh, but this uh, next one is going to start to get into the very detailed book foreshadowing that, uh, that this theory was based on. So uh, here you go. Enjoy part two. LML in 13. The End of Ice and Fire, part two. Hey there, friends. LML here again. Thanks so much for joining me for part two of our Endgame series. Last time I showed you why I think that the gruesome White Walker corpse spiral nailed to the wall of Last Hearth in Season 8, Episode 1, is functioning as a symbol of the Night King tree, and why I think that it's actually giving us some strong clues about what needs to be done to end the threat of the Night King and to free the army of the dead from eternal bondage. Hopefully you've seen that, and the basics of it are simple. Night King was created at that weirwood with the spiral arms of standing stones, and he seems to like to draw pictures of this place with the corpses of his victims, such as he did at Last Hearth in the Fist of the First Men. These corpse spirals are, on some level, serving as symbolic representations of his home tree. This is reinforced through symbolism. For example, just as the limbs of a weirwood tree have red leaves that are always described in the books as looking like bloody hands, the corpse spiral design at Last Hearth is made of limbs and bloody hands. The whited Ned Umbers pinned to the wall at the center of the spiral design, just as Night King was tied to the weirwood tree at the center of the spiral of stones. And look, they both have those same old blue eyes. I've got you under my skin. 
I've got dragon glass so deep in the heart of me. Okay, thank you. Now, I'm certainly not alone in coming to the conclusion that this corpse spiral at last hearth represents the Night King tree, which is encouraging. But that's basically step one here. The real fun comes with trying to figure out how the writers of the show might be using this symbol to give us clues. That leads to exciting questions like, why did that guy with the heavy parallels to Jon Snow just stab the corpse spiral with a flaming sword? And also, why did it then turn into a flaming spiral that kind of looks like a Targaryen three-headed dragon sigil? So here's what I put together. Someone playing the role of Azor High and carrying a symbol of Lightbringer is setting fire to the thing that represents the Night King tree. And this seems like a clue about how to beat the Night King. This could imply setting fire to Night King's home tree specifically, or perhaps to the thing that we call the Weirwood Net as a whole, meaning the astral dimension that is accessed by green seers like Bran and Bloodraven, and by Night King as well. The idea is that the Night King's magic seems tied either to his home Weirwood tree or to the Weirwood Net in general, and setting it on fire, in some sense, may be the only way to stop him. It could be a literal burning, or something more metaphorical, though with all the dragons and flaming swords lurking about, I'd guess that the fire will at least be partially real, and all the way hot. I left off last time by promising that this sequence, Azor High setting fire to the Weirwoods to stop the White Walkers and end the Long Night, had actually been spelled out in the books many times through symbolism, that I had actually been documenting these scenes in my podcast for a long time. I've picked a couple of the very best ones for today, and I hope showing them to you will convince you that the books and the show are building towards the same general endgame here involving the Weirwoods and the White Walkers. And fire. First up is Melisandre and Stannis at Dragonstone doing their Lightbringer dramatic reenactment. Now when I say that Azor High needs to set fire to the Weirwoods with Lightbringer, I do not necessarily mean that Jon Snow needs to literally stab the Night King tree with a flaming sword. Although, who knows, it could happen. Lightbringer doesn't have to be a literal flaming sword. It can also be a dragon, or a person, or even a comet. If the Night King's tree needs to be melted or burned, probably makes more sense if our Azor High reborn heroes, Jon and Daenerys, use a dragon instead of a flaming sword. Or it could be that setting fire to the Weirwoods is more metaphorical and that it's something that Bran might do on the astral plane, from the inside, if you will. We will get into all that, and by all means, comment on the video with your ideas about how this could play out. But I do want to tell you that the first time in the story that we ever saw a flaming sword called Lightbringer, it was actually already stuck in a kind of burning tree. The scene on Dragonstone opens with the red comet in the sky and the wooden statues of the gods of the Faith of the Seven already on fire, and with the burning Lightbringer already jammed into the statue of the Mother. There's no weirwood tree here, but this statue serves as a symbol of a weirwood tree because it's a carved wooden god, specifically carved from old wood, just as the weirwood trees have carved faces and house the old gods. Consider also that all of these wooden statues of the Seven are carved from the mass of ships, which are the next best thing to tree trunks. With seven of them arranged in a group like that, they even look kind of like a grove of trees, a sacred grove, which is now a fire. The chapter from A Clash of Kings that has this scene begins with these lines. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. They were all afire now, maid and mother, warrior and smith the crone with her pearl eyes and the father with his gilded beard, even the stranger carved to look more animal than human, 
The old, dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce, hungry light. When the weirwoods are burned, the air is similarly filled with the smoke of burning gods, so you can see the correlation here. Now in the show version, this scene is at night, but in the book version, it takes place in the morning, meaning that the night is ending here, just as the wooden gods are being burnt. Although we don't have time to go into too much detail on this right now, there is actually a lot more to the link between burning ships and burning weirwoods. For example, there's a legendary fellow named the Grey King, who sailed weirwood boats and who was said to possess the fire of the gods for man by means of a burning tree. So, weirwood boats and burning trees together in harmony. And there's also something about a sea dragon. You can find out more about that in Weirwood Compendium 1, The Grey King and the Sea Dragon, as well as on the Disputed Lands channel, where Crowfood's daughter has a great video about the Grey King. But back here on Dragonstone, what we have is a carved wooden god, burning brightly, with Lightbringer jammed into its wood. The maiden lay athwart the warrior, her arms widespread as if to embrace him. The mother seemed almost to shudder as the flames came licking up her face. A long sword had been thrust through her heart, and its leather grip was alive with flame. The sword is thrust through her heart, everyone, through the wooden heart of a burning god. In terms of symbolism, this is a great depiction of a burning heart tree that contains the old gods. This done, Melisandre begins feeling it, and starts to talk about the prophecy of Azor High, giving us a clue that the idea of sticking a burning sword into a weirwood tree has something to do with defeating the Long Night. Melisandre was robed all in scarlet satin and blood velvet, her eyes as red as the great ruby that glistened at her throat as if it too were fire. In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azor Ahai come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. She lifted her voice so it carried out over the gathered host. Azor Ahai, beloved of R'hllor, the warrior of light, the son of fire, come forth, your sword awaits you. Come forth and take it into your hand. And that's just what Stannis does. Hearing all this inspirational Azor High and the Long Night talk, he marches into the pyre and pulls Lightbringer out of the carved wooden god and holds it aloft. This is a symbolic depiction of Azor High triumphing over the cold and darkness that covered the world during the Long Night. And again, it involves stabbing a tree-turned carved wooden god with a flaming sword. That's a pretty nice correlation to our proposed endgame of using Lightbringer to set fire to the Night King's tree, or to the Weirwood Net as a whole. In the book version of these events, Stannis' sword even burns with green fire, as Melisandre has coated the sword in wildfire to make it, you know, look like a burning sword. And this may be a clue about green magic, the magic of the green seers and the Weirwoods, being set on fire. It's green fire. Here's something else to consider. Making bonfires out of weirwoods is something that Stannis and Melisandre are kind of into. Speaking in terms of book canon, Melisandre and Stannis later go to Storm's End and burn the great old weirwood heart tree there, most likely an 8,000-year-old tree from the Age of Heroes. One imagines that he probably waved his Lightbringer around a bit when they did it, but either way, it's another example of an Azorahai figure burning weirwoods. Actual weirwoods this time, not symbolic ones like here at Dragonstone. 
Then, in a storm of swords, Stannis offers to legitimize Jon Snow as Jon Stark, Lord of Winterfell. But Melisandre and Stannis would require him to burn the Winterfell heart tree if he takes the offer, so he refuses. But if Jon does end up having to help set fire to the Weirwoods, in some sense, to defeat the White Walkers, then this idea of Jon burning the Winterfell heart tree will be looked at as heavy foreshadowing. That Winterfell heart tree is associated with Bran more than any other tree, too, since Bran sees through its eyes in his weird visions and even speaks from inside of it to Theon. So, yikes. In A Dance with Dragons, Melisandre and Stannis burn more actual weirwood at the Wall, and this is really becoming a theme here, when they demand that each of the wildlings who want to cross to the south of the Wall toss a piece of weirwood into the bonfire. And this time, Stannis is definitely waving Lightbringer around in everyone's faces. The wildlings are, of course, fleeing from the White Walkers here, and notice how escaping them is equated with burning the old gods. Behind them was only cold and death. Ahead was hope. They came on, clutching their scraps of wood until the time came to feed them to the flames. R'hllor was a jealous deity, ever hungry, so the new god devoured the corpse of the old and cast gigantic shadows of Stannis and Melisandre upon the wall, black against the ruddy red reflections on the ice. The weirwood trees really do look like corpse trees, with their bleeding faces carved into trunks as white as bone and with their leaves like bloody hands. And there's even a white tree, white tree wordplay thing going on. Here we see the weirwood corpse of the old gods, devoured by fire at the command of an Azor high figure and his fire witch, fitting the pattern once again. In fact, only moments before unsheathing Lightbringer and opening the gates to the wildlings here, Stannis and Melisandre burn the Lord of Bones, who's glamoured up to look like Mance Raider, in a weirwood cage. The Lord of Bones, a.k.a. Rattleshirt, is definitely a White Walker symbol, with his bone-white armor to match the bone-white skin of the White Walkers, and the general connotation of the Lord of Death, which comes along with dressing up as a skeleton. And anyone who is the king beyond the wall, like Mance Raider, can play that role as well, since the Night King is the real king beyond the wall. And again, there's more book symbolism to back this up. So, that's a Night King figure burned inside a weirwood cage at the wall, y'all. And as he died screaming, Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. John had seen the show before, but not like this. Never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. If we imagine Rattleshirt disguised as Mance as playing the role of the Night King, this is a home run for our theory. Burning the Night King inside a weirwood cage at the wall as Lightbringer shines as bright as the sun. This really seems like a glimpse of what the endgame might look like. Several heroes working together to trap and contain the Night King while his weirwood tree is set on fire, which contains and consumes him. This is the big hint about how to destroy the Night King, turn his weirwood tree, the source of his power, into a burning weirwood cage. Again, we think of the blue-eyed, whited Ned Umber, who seemed to be playing the role of Night King, pinned to the center of the spiral diagram of the Night King tree while it all burns. It's a symbolic burning weirwood cage for the Night King. Returning to the scene of Mance Raider's burning, we look around and, oh, hey, there's Jon Snow's or high. Hey, Jon. Jon actually uses an arrow to put the glamoured rattle shirt out of his misery before too long, so Jon is even implied as delivering part of the blow that ends the Night King, and doesn't that make sense? All right, did you enjoy that? 
I promised Azor High burning weirwoods, and I think we're off to a good start. You gotta love how the first Stannis Lightbringer scene takes place at Dragonstone, home of House Targaryen, and the place where the show has depicted spiral images in the caves alongside White Walkers and a bunch of other cool shit that I broke down with History of Westeros in their video Caverns of Dragonglass, which you can find on their YouTube page. I really can't wait to see if there might be similar cave drawings at Dragonstone in the books. And I'd also recommend Grey Area's video positing that, at least in show canon, the Targaryens may have modeled their three-headed dragon sigil off of the spiral designs that they saw in the caverns. And this is why the burning Night King corpse spiral resembles the Targaryen dragon, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I'll see you again soon with part three, where we'll break down the most epic dragon rider versus dragon rider battle in recorded history, one that acts as a perfect model for the eternal clash of ice and fire. We'll find more symbolism of Azor Ahai shutting down the Weirwood net in order to defeat the White Walkers, and even stabbing Weirwoods with a sword, like literally. And this time, dragons. All right, that was part two of the End of Ice and Fire series. Uh, some fun stuff with uh, Stannis and Melisandre there. Weirwood Cage, a lot of stuff from the Weirwood Compendium making an appearance, if you're familiar with that series. And next up, uh, this is the one I think I'm most proud of, End of Ice and Fire Part 3. Damon and Caraxes versus Aemond, One-Eye, and Vagar, one of my favorite scenes in the books. Um, this was an excuse to really drill down into it um, as a foreshadowing of the end game of the series. I've always believed it was an end-of-series kind of battle. You know, classic ice and fire, you know, dragons and contestants, mutual destruction into the gods I lake, all that stuff. So this is a fun one, guys. Enjoy this, and I'll be back at the end with some more thoughts to wrap it up. LML in 13. The End of Ice and Fire, Part 3. Hey there, friends. LML here, and thanks for checking out Part 3 of our End of Ice and Fire series. And if you haven't seen the first two parts, you'll definitely want to watch those before this one. In Part 1, we laid out the basic theory of this series. That Beric, stabbing and burning that corpse spiral at last hearth from Episode 1 represents the idea of an Azora High figure burning the Weirwood Tree in the far north where the Night King was created, or maybe even burning the Weirwood Net as a whole. The idea here is that the spiral shapes, such as the one at Last Hearth, seem to represent the Night King Tree, which has those spiral arms of standing stones. So using a Lightbringer sword to burn such a spiral struck me and a few others as heavy foreshadowing. In part two, we began to get into examples from the books, which back up the main theory. Scenes which depict an Azora High person stabbing or burning weirwoods, or things which symbolize weirwoods. In part two, we began to get into examples from the books which back up the main theory. Scenes which depict an Azora High person burning or stabbing weirwoods, or things which symbolize weirwoods, and always with the goal of defeating the White Walkers and ending the Long Night. We mostly looked at scenes with Stannis burning weirwoods and symbolic weirwoods, though we also mentioned Stannis offering to make Jon Snow an official Stark and the Lord of Winterfell, if only he will burn down that Winterfell heart tree. Perhaps the most telling of all the examples that we looked at was the burning of the Lord of Bones, who was glamoured up to look like Mance Raider, in a weirwood cage at the Wall. The Weirwood Cage is a book-only detail, but it's especially important because both the Lord of Bones and Mance Raider are symbolic Night King figures, and burning the Night King in a Weirwood Cage 
is simply another way of talking about the general idea of burning the weirwoods to destroy the White Walkers. The implication is that the weirwoods can be used as a trap to contain and consume the Night's King, and that is because, in my opinion, the power of the show version Night King is tied to that weirwood tree where he was transformed. And in the books, we can say that all signs seem to point to the White Walkers as a whole having been created with weirwood magic. So now here we are, waiting for the big battle at Winterfell that's coming in Episode 3. And look! Bran is planning to use himself as bait to lure the Night King into the Godswood, where Jon and Danny hope to use their dragons to spring a trap. In other words, we will probably have, all gathered together, the Night King, Bran, a weirwood tree, and Azor High people wielding lots of fire. All the ingredients of my theory are in place, save that our Azor High people are armed with dragons as opposed to flaming swords, which is fine, because those are both Lightbringer symbols. Another difference is that we aren't at the Night King Weirwood Tree in the far north, but at Winterfell. But recall that the two times that Bran visited that Night King tree, he actually did so on the astral plane using the magic of the Weirwoods. I think many of us are expecting at some point to see a battle where Danny and Jon fight the Night King on the physical plane, while Bran does so on the astral plane. And we could definitely see something like that next week, where the fight moves from Winterfell to the astral plane, and thus to the now-frozen Night King home tree. What I have for you today is another great book example of Azor High destroying weirwoods to kill a Night King figure. I've chosen this one because it's a Dragon Rider versus Dragon Rider battle, which acts as a perfect model for the eternal clash of ice and fire. And in episode 3, we very well may see a dragon fight between Jon and Danny's fire dragons and the Night King's ice dragon. But before we do, whether that's this week or in the future, I want to show you this dragon rider battle from the Targaryen Civil War known as the Dance of the Dragons, which I think may foreshadow what's going to happen when ice and fire dragons do collide. There are also more clues about Bran in here, as well as clues about the connection between the Weirwoods and the White Walkers. So now is the time to have a good look at this hot dragon-on-dragon action. This dragon rider fight, the dragon rider fight to end all dragon rider fights, really, takes place about 200 years before the current storyline, back when the Targaryens ruled Westeros with dragons, but didn't always get along so well with each other. The combatants in this fight are the 19-year-old Aemond One-Eye Targaryen, who rode the mighty Vagar, and his uncle, the 49-year-old but still frisky Daemon Targaryen, who rode the fearsome red dragon called Caraxes, the Bloodworm. This one stood out right away because of the spectacular way the fight ends, and I'm just going to read this bit from The Princess and the Queen because it's simply too good to summarize. The attack came sudden as a thunderbolt. Caraxes dove down upon Vagar with a piercing shriek that was heard a dozen miles away, cloaked by the glare of the setting sun on Prince Aemon's blind side. The bloodworms slammed into the older dragon with terrible force. Their roars echoed across the god's eye as the two grappled and toured one another, dark against a blood-red sky. So bright did their flames burn that fisherfolk below feared the clouds themselves had caught fire. Locked together, the dragons tumbled toward the lake. The bloodworm's jaws closed about Vagar's neck, her black teeth sinking deep into the flesh of the larger dragon. Even as Vagar's claws raked her belly open and Vagar's own teeth ripped away a wing, Caraxes bit deeper, worrying at the wound as the lake rushed up below them with terrible speed. And it was then, the tales tell us, that Prince Daemon Targaryen swung a leg over his saddle and leapt from one dragon to the other. 
In his hand was Dark Sister, the sword of Queen Visenya. As Aemond one eye looked up in terror, fumbling with the chains that bound him to his saddle, Damon ripped off his nephew's helm and drove the sword down into his blind eye, so hard the point came out the back of the young prince's throat. Half a heartbeat later, the dragons struck the lake, sending up a gout of water so high that it was said to have been as tall as Kingspire Tower. Neither man nor dragon could have survived such an impact, the fisherfolk who saw it said, nor did they. Perhaps the most single, badass, action hero type of thing that anyone has ever done in his song of ice and fire. True, Damon died anyway seconds later, but hey, he leapt from one dragon to the other in midair. And that sounds pretty hard. There's a lot of symbolism here to unpack, and let's start with the fact that the battle took place over the Lake of the God's Eye, which contains the Isle of Faces. In the books, the Isle of Faces is the closest thing to a hub of the Weirwood Net that exists. For instance, it's very possible that the book equivalent to the idea of burning the Night King tree may turn out to be burning the Weirwoods on the Isle of Faces. And shout out to Smokescreen, who's been talking about that very thing for a while now in his excellent series, A Dragon Raised by Wolves. It's notable then that as Daemon Targaryen waited at Harrenhal before the battle, he made a habit out of... Stabbing weirwood trees, that's right. And this too is from The Princess and the Queen. Daemon Targaryen walked the cavernous halls of Heron's Seat alone, with no companion but his dragon. Each night at dusk he slashed the heart tree in the godswood to mark the passing of another day. Thirteen marks can be seen upon that weirwood still. Old wounds, deep and dark. Yet the lords who have ruled Harrenhal since Daemon's day say they bleed afresh every spring. And we've got some weirwood stabbing here at Harrenhal by the God's Eye on the Isle of Faces. Damon's sword is not a flaming sword, but it is made from Valerian steel, making it a magic sword and a dragon sword, and thus a great stand-in for Lightbringer. And what is he doing with it? Stabbing the weirwood tree, which is what TV show Beric is symbolically doing when he stabs the corpse spiral diagram of Night King's frozen tree. That's a great clue that Damon will be the Azor High figure in this fight as that's who stabs and burns the weirwoods in these types of scenes. And as I mentioned, Damon rode a red dragon, Caraxes the Bloodworm. Lightbringer was said to be a blood-red sword, associated with dragons and the red comet, so Caraxes the Blood-Red Dragon serves very well as a symbol of Lightbringer, especially when taken together with Damon's Valerian Steel Sword. Damon stabbed that Harrenhal weirwood tree, which stands in for the Night King tree, 13 times, and isn't that interesting? Thirteen is a number strongly tied to the book legend of Night's King, which, although different from the TV show Night King, was definitely something that Dave and Dan drew on to create their own character of a similar name. Night's King, from the books, was said to be the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and was also said to rule from the Night Fort for 13 years. Even in the TV show, in the scene where one of Craster's sons is transformed at that strange White Walker Ice Temple thing, we did see a dozen White Walkers with the Night King to make 13. Ergo, Damon's stabbing the weirwood tree 13 times is very, very suggestive of something having to do with the Night King. It's almost like he's labeling the tree as a Night King tree, or perhaps even trying to summon the Night King to come fight. Which is actually just what happens next. That's right. After 13 days of weirwood stabbing, Damon's foe, a symbolic Night King figure, descends from the sky on a dragon. I've talked about this fight in a lot of detail in several podcasts if you want the full breakdown, but here are the key points. At the age of 10, Aemond lost one of his eyes in a quarrel based around his claiming of the dragon Vagar, and he replaced the missing eye 
with a blue star sapphire. As clues go, that's not very subtle. It's an obvious call-out to the blue star eyes of the others. And of course, for those of you who are less familiar with the books, that is always how the eyes of the White Walkers are described, as cold-burning blue stars. Now take a look at the paragraph that comes after the one about Damon slashing the heart tree 13 times. On the 14th day of the prince's vigil, a shadow swept over the castle, blacker than any passing cloud. All the birds in the godswood took to the air in fright, and a hot wind whipped the fallen leaves across the yard. Vagar had come at last, and on her back rode the one-eyed prince Aemond Targaryen, clad in night-black armor, chased with gold. All right, so Aemond of the Blue Star Eye has night-black armor. That's pretty cool. And his dragon creates a dramatically black shadow, which, taken together, implies Aemond as a blue star-eyed guy who is bringing the darkness of the long night with him. The final clue tying Aemond One-Eye to the White Walkers and to ice magic in general is his amazing resemblance to the constellation known as the Ice Dragon when he rides Vagar. The Ice Dragon constellation seems to be a modified version of our own constellation Draco, which sort of wraps around the pole star or north star Polaris. In A Song of Ice and Fire, the north star is a bright blue star, which is perceived as the eye of the rider of the Ice Dragon constellation. So when Aemond of the one blue star sapphire eye rides a dragon, he's creating the image of the Ice Dragon constellation, which again is thought to be ridden by a dude with a blue star eye. Vagar is also implied as an ice dragon by the name Vagar, because the star Vega is a bright blue-white northern star that has been our pole star in the past, and will be again in the future because Earth's axial tilt means the pole star shifts very slowly over time. That makes two references to the northern pole star when Aemond rides Vagar, and in A Song of Ice and Fire, the pole star is part of the ice dragon. That's exactly the sort of dragon you'd expect a Night King figure to ride, and indeed, the show has now given us the Night King riding a whited dragon or a white walker dragon, however you want to say it. Aemond One-Eye here did it first, though, through all this heavy Night King and Ice Dragon symbolism, and I've been thinking of him and this fight ever since the day HBO gave Night King his dragon. And in case you're wondering why I keep saying that characters from the books are Night King figures when there is no Night King in the current book storyline that we know of, well... Two things. One, I believe odds are good that in the books something like the Night King does exist inside the Weirwood Net, and that we will get that reveal in the next book and realize that the show is actually closer to the book canon than we thought. And two, although the ancient legend of Night's King from the books implies that he lived sometime shortly after the Long Night, I believe this is a fog of history thing, and that there was in fact an original Night's King who created the White Walkers during the original Long Night. One of the reasons why I believe these things is because I keep finding people like Aemond One-Eye, who are wearing all the Night King symbolism like a cheap suit. People like Euron Greyjoy, Vermeer Sixkins, Mance Raider, the Lord of Bones, and a few others. People in the fandom like myself have actually been finding these Night King parallel figures even before HBO gave us a Night King, just to give you an idea. George R.R. R. Martin likes to create archetypes like Azor Ahai, Nissa Nissa, The Last Hero, or Night's King, which many characters seem to then step into. That's why Jon and Daenerys can both be Azor Ahai reborn, and why Jaime and many other characters might seem like Azor Ahai once in a while too. In this way, George hides clues about these all-important issues in far-flung places like dragon rider fights from 200-year-old Targaryen history. 
Indeed, when we step back and look at what's going on here at the God's Eye with Damon and Amond One-Eye in terms of symbolism, what we see is an Azor High figure stabbing the Weirwood and then having a dragon fight with a Night's King figure. We can observe that Azor High wins, so to speak, and that Damon leaps over to Vagar and stabs Amond right in his blue star eye before all the dragons plunge into the lake. Since the blue star eyes are what signify the magic of the White Walkers, Damon stabbing Amond right in the blue star eye certainly seems like a symbol of defeating the power of the White Walkers. But really, what we see is ice and fire canceling each other out, with everyone dying, including the Night King and the Azora High figures, and the dragons. And that's more or less what we should expect from the ending, I believe. This is another layer of potential meaning to the last hearth corpse spiral, which resembles a Targaryen three-headed dragon sigil when it goes up in flames. You could see this as a dragon symbol made of corpses. In other words, a corpse dragon. A dead dragon, burning in the same fire that consumes Night's King. That's in line with what the fandom has come to expect from the ending. You can't kill all the White Walkers and leave the dragons. Either both will survive or neither, it seems or else the Song of Ice and Fire would have no balance. The capstone of all this symbolism is the double blue eye stabbing symbolism happening here. It's simple yet elegant. First, Amond is stabbed in his blue star eye with a dragon sword, and only seconds later, the blue god's eye lake is stabbed with the falling dragons. Either way, a blue eye is stabbed with a dragon. That is certainly suggestive of using dragons or dragon swords to defeat the Night King, which I know, duh, right? But think of the weirwood component here. Since the God's Eye Lake contains an island full of weirwoods, it's easy to see the idea of stabbing the God's Eye with dragons as similar to stabbing a weirwood tree with a Lightbringer sword or roasting it with dragon fire. And again, this follows right on the heels of Damon stabbing an actual weirwood tree 13 times with his own dragon sword. Put it all together and we see the familiar message. Stab Night King with Lightbringer, yes, but don't forget to stab the Weirwoods at the same time. Burn them all, if you will. As much as I have talked about this fight and as much as I've always seen it as some kind of foreshadowing of the endgame of Ice and Fire, I've never fully understood all the implications. But after episode one of season eight and that delightful corpse spiral symbol, I think we can now see that the TV show and the books are both leading to the same general answer. To stop the White Walkers, the Weirwoodnet must be burned. Looking at the fight between Amond and Damon more simply, taking the eagle-eye view, if you will, we can observe that the ice and fire dragonlords are battling over the god's eye. Think about them fighting over, as in contesting for, the Weirwoodnet. The god's eyes are the Weirwood's eyes, the ones the old gods see out of, and thus I believe that the contestants here are meant to be seen as fighting over the use of these god's eyes. In the show, the Three-Eyed Crow, aided by his dragon lords, and Night King, aided by his ice dragon, white walkers, and whites, seem to be doing just that, fighting for possession and dominance over the Weirwoods, which are almost certainly the most powerful source of magic around. Bran and the Night King seem to keep having their showdowns inside the Weirwood net, too, which is emblematic of the ground that they are fighting over, the Weirwoods. Consider also that Daemon is waiting in the God's Wood for the Night King figure to show up, exactly as Bran will be waiting in the Winterfell Godswood as bait for the Night King in Episode 3. And this is one of the reasons why I was so excited to bring this to you this week before Episode 3. Damon was using himself as bait, just like Bran. He planted himself at Hall because he knew eventually Aemond and Vagar would come seek him out and find him. And they did. 
It's the same with Bran, who declares in episode two that the Night King knows where he is and will come for him. I would not be surprised in the slightest if Bran's plan is to lure the Night King into the Godswood so he can pull some maneuver where he sacrifices himself to defeat the Night King, just as Daemon gave up his own life to take down Aemond One-Eye. I also wouldn't be surprised if this battle starts here in Episode 3, but continues on the astral plane in future episodes, because, hey, we don't expect this all to be resolved this week, right? Now, keeping in mind the idea that the God's Eye Lake represents the Weirwoods, the trees with the eyes of the old gods, consider that in Daemon's fight, both riders and dragons plunged into the God's Eye Lake, dying instantly or moments later. The parallel here would be Bran and the Night King essentially killing each other inside the Weirwood Net, which is where I think this is headed. Not only do the dragons and the riders die in the God's Eye Lake, or on the lake shore in the case of Caraxes, Daemon's dragon sword even stays stuck in Aemon's blue star eye, as years later, Vagar's corpse is found at the bottom of the lake, where Prince Aemon's armored bones remain chained to her saddle, with Dark Sister thrust hilt deep through his eye socket. Lightbringer and the Night King, united forever at the bottom of the sea, if you will. And this, to me, reads like one of our heroes, who themselves can play the role of Lightbringer, self-sacrificing to trap the Night King in the underworld for all time, even though it means that they might be trapped there as well. This definitely sounds like Bran to me. And remember that Bran's name may be partially derived from the Norse word brander, which means burning brand and flaming sword. He might be the symbolic flaming sword that sets fire to the Weirwood from the inside. Much like Bran's cauldron from Welsh mythology, which eventually has to be destroyed from the inside by a self-sacrificing hero because, and you're going to like this, the cauldron raises the dead, which eventually becomes a problem. The parallels here are unbelievable, with the Weirwood magic being used by Night King to raise the dead as the parallel to Bran's cauldron. This is another reason why the myth-friendly portion of the fandom has actually been entertaining the idea of a Weirwood Net shutdown for years. And we actually just call this the Bran Cauldron Theory at this point. And speaking of Bran in the Godswood waiting for Night King and saving the best for last, it's interesting to note that the plan is to have Theon and his Ironborn there to protect him, in addition to the dragons. Why is this so interesting? Well, when Theon was in the Winterfell Godswood at dawn in A Clash of Kings... The heart tree appeared to him as though it were already on fire. The line was, The red leaves of the weirwood were a blaze of flame among the green. Elsewise, the red weirwood leaves are always described as blood red. But then, nothing goes together like blood and fire, and weirwoods apparently, which are well known for drinking blood and will soon be known for burning brightly. What with all these dragons and Targaryens and burning Brandons lurking about. So, with all of these examples I've given you so far in this series, and believe me, there are many more, you can see that not only does Azor Ahai need to face the Night King and the White Walkers with Lightbringer, he's got to deal with the Night King's connection to the Weirwoods. The Night King's power seems rooted to that tree where he was created, and time and time again in these book examples, we see that the burning of the Weirwoods is tied to the defeat of the Long Night and the White Walkers. This is exactly what I believe is implied by Beric stabbing the spiral corpse mandala at the last hearth with his flaming sword. So, having established that the Weirwoods must burn, the plan right now is for part four to examine Daenerys and the House of the Undying, which will begin to explain the connection between the White Walkers and the Weirwoods, and which will reveal the dark plans that the White Walkers have for our Azor Ahai heroes. However, depending on what happens next week, I might decide to do something different. We'll just have to see. 
All right, well, wasn't that just a walk down yesteryear? Simpler times they were. We were all so young, so full of hope. I certainly was full of hope for about 95% of episode 3. Heck, even the dragon fight between the Night King on the Whited Viserion and John on Regal seemed to be borrowing from that Aemon and Daemon dragon fight. You know, the way the dragons dropped out of the sky to slam into each other, and then the way the Viserion and Regal got locked up in the sky with the Night King then throwing spears at John at fairly close range. I was waiting for one of them to jump across to the other. That would have been cool. Anyways, when the Army of the Living seemed to be getting their asses kicked for most of the battle, I thought, well, that makes sense. You probably would get your ass kicked against an army of zombies who absorbed, you know, all of your fallen soldiers into their army. Uh, so I thought that makes sense. Uh, and I thought it boded well for the big sacrificial bonfire, you know, that I was hoping for at the end. When all hope seemed really lost, and the White Walkers filed into the godswood easy as you please, with the slow, eerie piano playing, my hopes were really up, I have to say. Everything was perfect. Now, one of the courtesies that Dave and Dan did do us all was to say that they chose to give Arya the kill shot, because they thought John would be too predictable. This tells us that in the books, we are probably looking at a different scenario. In the books, the others don't have a Night's King type figure that we know of, not yet, and even if they do manage to get one, we probably shouldn't expect Arya to drop out of the sky and stab him uh, to you know, win the battle, necessarily. Now, the idea of the others marching south and reaching Winterfell, that seems very likely to happen in the book. So, once again, we're going to look to ask the question, what might George have planned with White Walkers in the Winterfell Godswood? It's an exciting question, and one I will get to with a dedicated episode very soon, just to give you an idea of what my next few videos and podcasts might be like. But first things first, let me briefly sum up the main predictions that I made, and the foreshadowings that I interpreted in these videos. Obviously, the big one is the simple idea of shutting down, ending, or destroying the Weirwoods, or the Weirwoodnet. I talk of the Night King home tree in terms of the TV show, and although the books could eventually show us frozen Weirwoods in the dreaded heart of winter, or something like that, I mean, I'd be into it, what we're probably talking about in terms of the books, instead of the Night King tree, would either be the Weirwoods on the Isle of Faces which, you know, the Isle of Faces seems to be some sort of hub or nexus point of the Weirwood Net, or perhaps the Weirwood Tree in the Winterfell Godswood, which would be the tree with the most significance and emotional resonance to the reader, or perhaps even the Weirwood Grove of Nine, where the Night's Watch brothers swear their oaths. Any of these physical locations could, of course, simply serve as a proxy for the Weirwood Net as a whole, or as a means of accessing and destroying the Weirwood Net as a whole. The Brand's Cauldron idea has always been really tantalizing to me. I mean, the idea of destroying the cauldron because it is the thing that raises the dead just really seems to translate so well to A Song of Ice and Fire. From the moment that the show depicted their Night King being able to reach Bran on the astral plane inside the Weirwood Net dream realm, I've been saying that something like this may happen in the books as well, and this may not be something the show just made up. I think that the original Night's King in the books who is probably Azor High, mind you, or someone connected to him, may still be alive inside the Weirwood Net. Something like the Dread Sorcerer Ineluki from Tad Williams's Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, Hattip Grey Area. So it's possible that if we get any sort of book version 
of a Night King slash Leader of the Others figure, he may only appear on the astral plane, or he may appear there first. If so, it's almost certainly Bran who will see him and confront him there, so I maintain hope that the show was, in fact, loosely drawing from something George may have told them about the others being tied to the children of the forest magic and the weirwoods when they showed us things like the White Walkers and the Night King contacting Bran on the astral plane, the Night King being able to sense Bran's skin-changing ravens and kick him out of them, and that sort of thing. As for those physical locations I just mentioned, the Grove of Nine may see some action, but I think it's really down to Winterfell and the Isle of Faces as the place for a climactic battle against the others, or as the most important weirwood location, if you just want to speak in general terms. The first question is whether you think the invasion of the others will get past Winterfell or not. If the Isle of Faces turns out to be the key weirwood place, then that's maybe where they're trying to get to. And then we have Daenerys' dream of fighting a version of the Battle of the Trident on Dragonback against enemies armored in ice, which could foreshadow the others getting past Winterfell and striking south, reaching the Riverlands, perhaps the Trident. Otherwise, I'd guess it will be more like the show, with the invasion being stopped at Winterfell, the place where Winterfell, or was felled. Along those lines, in the second video, I mentioned John being asked to burn the Winterfell Heart Tree in order to be named John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, by Stannis, and that he has his Azora High defending the wall with a burning red sword dream while he is pondering that offer. What if this dream and request to burn the tree is actually a weird foreshadowing of John being forced to, yet again, do something personally awful for the greater good? Burning down the Winterfell heart tree seems simply awful when Stannis is asking him to do it at this point in the story. But what if Bran finds out that the White Walkers actually draw their power from these trees? The Winterfell tree itself may be especially significant. Jon Stark, Lord of Winterfell, he might be the one to burn it down. And again, it would only be another in a long line of very difficult and awful things that Jon has been required to do by circumstance. I also mentioned that scene with the burning of Rattleshirt, disguised as Mance Raider, in a weirwood cage at the wall, and had quite a bit of fun with it. Conceptually, it's a great visualization of the fishing weir, fish trap aspect of the weirwood etymology and symbolism, with a Night King figure being the one caught in the weirwood trap. Then it's set on fire, and Lightbringer is unsheathed. This is definitely a scene laden with important symbolic foreshadowing, I think that much is clear. Is it foreshadowing someone being caught in a burning weirwood trap of some sort, or what? One interesting thing to note, in a way, the figure burned in the weirwood cage could be seen as either surviving or as being resurrected, since most everyone thinks they saw Mance burned in the cage, only later to hear from the pink letter that Mance is in fact alive and is being held captive in another cage, an iron one this time, at Winterfell. This almost has a portal-like effect of slingshotting the Mance figure from a cage at the wall to a cage at Winterfell. And again, I think of the Weirwood Net as an astral plane that people can navigate and maybe even use as a portal. I'm thinking of this figure as a Night King character, but I should note that it could be Jon Snow we're really talking about here. A pyre could be involved in his resurrection ceremony. Uh, it'd be a shame if any weirwood were to get into that pyre, wouldn't it? And he may well visit Winterfell in a dream while he's unconscious. Now, we'll surely come back to this weirwood cage burning scene to study it in more detail, because we also have to consider that Mance's people, the wildlings, 
were each required to burn a scrap of weirwood to cross the wall themselves, which they did right after Mance was burned. The wildlings were laden with other symbolism in that chapter, if you recall, so what we saw may have been something about each white walker having a bit of weirwood in their essence, and about burning weirwood being the key to perhaps setting their spirits free, in a sense? Setting white walker spirits free probably amounts to stopping them, you know, separating their spirit from their physical body. So this could be a glimpse into the way in which this scenario is, quote-unquote, more complicated uh, in the books than it was in the show. We actually saw a hint of this concept in the Start Back reverse reading of the A Game of Thrones prologue episode that we did a few months ago. One interpretation of that sequence had the other simply sort of melting back into the wood after certain things were accomplished. One also thinks back to the burning of the switchback stair at the wall, a scene that we looked at in Signs and Portals 2. The stair itself seemed to be symbolizing a weirwood tree, and a frozen one at that. If you recall, we had that cool, frozen, wooden thunderbolt symbolic language applied to it. It gets set on fire by John, amongst other Night's Watchmen, as a means of stopping the Magnar of Thens invading wildlings, who once again, seemed to symbolize the others in that scene. That's actually a scene I had earmarked to go back to in the video series anyway, as it fits the profile of a weirwood burning to stop the others pretty darn well. At the beginning of the second End of Ice and Fire video, we spent some time on Dragonstone at the Burning of the Seven. Now, I've always thought about this scene as depicting the cause of the Long Night, the act of original sin, if you will. According to my thinking, that act has something to do with Azora High breaking into the Weirwood Net, quote-unquote, or attempting to steal its power in some sense. And yet, in this video, here I am talking about the scene as part of the final sequence, part of the final act of stopping the others. There seems to be a tension here. One YouTube comment suggested it was a rewrite of my old theory, which he didn't particularly buy, which I actually kind of understand that criticism. Now, without getting neck deep in the Two Moons Weirwood Portal theory, let me just remind you that the cycle of ice and fire is a mirrored one, and perhaps an eternal one. Things that get frozen over eventually blow up in fire. The dragon locked in ice symbolic pattern pretty much always ends with the frozen dragon re-emerging in fire. Azor High seems to set the Weirwoods on fire when he breaks into the Weirwood Net, but his re-emergence also seems to involve fire with the ice, cold, and darkness coming in between. All of which is to say, the endgame conflagration will probably end up mirroring the original sin, the original conflagration. Of course, right? Everything is echoed and paralleled and inverse paralleled and re-echoed and all that sort of thing. Thus, the scenes with the Ground Zero weirwood bonfires, like the Burning of the Seven on Dragonstone, are probably talking about both the original conflagration and the one that was promised. We can also think about ideas such as the disease and the cure can be one and the same, and other such paradoxical mumbo-jumbo that we've mentioned before in connection to Lightbringer and Venus mythology. As you surely recall, the same star, Venus, appears as both the morning star and the even star, and the same moon meteor event that caused the long night might have given us the magic rock that we needed to kill the demons that came from the long night. That sort of thing. Another thing to note about the sequence of events on Dragonstone at the Burning of the Seven is that Stannis pulls his Burning Lightbringer sword from the Wooden God right at dawn, which actually means that the Wooden God was stabbed and set on fire at night. 
My instinct is to say that the sword probably represents Azor High's spirit here, going into the Weirwoods in the darkness and then coming back out again. But however you want to interpret it, you can see that the burning Weirwoods seem to be involved in the entire sequence. Now in the third video, the one all about the Dragon Rider battle between Aemond One-Eyed Targaryen and Daemon Targaryen, I actually did a pretty good job of talking about the ramifications for the book alongside those for the show, but there are a couple of things that I want to mention. Obviously, the fight takes place over the God's Eye, which could support the theory that it is in fact the Isle of Faces which will be burned to stomp the others. Consider that double blue eye stabbing symbolism that I talked about, where Aemon's blue eye is stabbed by a dragon sword right before the blue lake of the god's eye is stabbed with the falling dragons and dragon riders. The blue star eye symbol represents the magic and power of the others, their version of the frozen fire of the gods. But then, the god's eye is a blue lake that looks like an eye. Said another way, when we look at the lake called the God's Eye, which contains the Isle of Faces, the hub of the Weirwood Net, it kind of looks like the Eye of an Other. This seems like a clue staring us right in the face. The power of the Others may be tied to the Weirwoods and perhaps to the Isle of Faces in particular. The very idea of stabbing the God's Eye could imply blinding the magical sight of the Weirwood Net, which, again, kind of sounds like a shutdown. So what we have in this battle is ice and fire dragon riders basically canceling each other out and killing each other, and then stabbing the god's eye. And the very idea of stabbing the god's eye implies blinding the magical sight of the Weirbonet, which again, kind of sounds like a shutdown. And so, once again, I am seeing foreshadowing of the main thesis of the theory. A Weirbonet shutdown as a means of defeating the others. Or you could even say, removing the others and dragons from the world. I'll also add that all the green zombie research that we've done recently, spurred on by the Old Ones line of inquiry, did actually lead us to speculate that some very important events relating to the creation of the Others and or the green zombies uh, who are dedicated to stopping them seem to have occurred on the Isle of Faces. So, the idea that the Isle of Faces is part of the endgame of the Others, I think it could definitely work. Now, how about this? Think about all the various silver dragons that we found going into the Green Sea in one way or another, which we talked about uh, in the last couple of Weirwood Compendium episodes. If you recall, there was Adam Valerion on Sea Smoke, who actually visited the Isle of Faces, you know, supposedly. Then there was Good Queen Alisande's dragon Silverwing, retiring to an isle in the middle of Red Lake in the Reach, which is a place associated with skin changing via Rose of Red Lake and Brandon of the Bloody Blade and some of the other more metaphorical examples that we discussed in that episode as well. In other words, George seems to be teasing us with the idea of dragons and dragon people, or more specifically green seer dragon people, going to the Isle of Faces. And if so, that seems like it you know, could be a part of the kind of fiery endgame events that we're talking about here, where you've got to take a dragon to the Isle of Faces, guys. Why would you need a dragon on the Isle of Faces? I'm just, okay, all right, I think I made my point. Now, one also can't help but notice the strong resemblance, this is going to be exciting, you guys will like this, between Aemond One-Eye and Euron Crow's-Eye. We talked about that a lot in Moons of Ice and Fire 4, The Long Night Was His to Rule. Vagar is a symbolic ice dragon, ridden by a guy with night-black armor and one shining blue eye. Euron has night-black Valyrian steel armor and wants to ride a dragon. Will it be Viserion, making Euron a good analog to the show version of Night King? 
Of course, Viserion, the white or cream-colored dragon, is the one who has the most ice dragon symbolism already, and I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up whited or transformed, uh, kind of like in the show. Or maybe he'll just be under Euron's control, and that'll that'll serve for the symbolism. But point is that, you know, taking all the mythical astronomy symbolism out of it, you could simply look at this battle between Aemond, One-Eye, and Daemon, and simply see it as George foreshadowing what will happen when Euron gets his hands on a dragon and does battle with someone else. Perhaps, I don't know, Jon Snow in the Daemon role? Makes sense, right? I mean, again, set all the mythical astronomy stuff aside, and you can just simply see Aemond One-Eye as an obvious parallel for Euron, and he's riding a dragon, having a sort of, you know, ice and fire battle that seems like an endgame dragon fight kind of battle. Then when you actually do interpret the daemon Aemond battle as an epitomization of the entire ice and fire conflict, as I tend to, it simply leads us to thinking that Euron will indeed be stepping into the role occupied by the show Night King, at least to some extent. That's going to become a theme here in the next few podcasts. Night King Euron. I think we can be pretty sure that that one is coming if we weren't already. Then there's also Hands of White Fire Lady. You know, that bit from Aaron Dampere's Shade of the Evening-Induced Nightmare Vision from the early release T-Wow chapter titled The Forsaken. The line was, Beside him stood a shadow in woman's form, long and tall and terrible, her hands alive with pale white fire. And there's been much debate about who or what that shadow represents. Is it Melisandre? Daenerys? Is it Melora Hightower, the Mad Maid? Some, such as my friend Baal the Bard, think it may even represent Viserion, building on the idea that dragons may have dragon rider souls inside them, the way skin-changed animals do. In the last video, I talked about how Aemond was found at the bottom of the lake, chained to Vagar's corpse, with Dark Sister jammed through his eye socket, and I mentioned that this could refer to one of our heroes becoming stuck in the weirwood net while trying to defeat the others. Danny, in particular, has a lot of scenes where she is taken prisoner or captive in some sense by a group representing the others, only to burn them out from within. Think of the House of the Undying here. She was being captured and enslaved by cold blue shadows, but then burned their temple from the inside with dragonfire. The slavers of Slaver's Bay got a similar treatment. Although they did not enslave Danny, they did momentarily gain possession of Drogon, only to then feel the wrath of Dracarys. We will definitely be breaking down all those scenes, as they have a lot of foreshadowing of what will happen when Danny confronts the others. But I just want to tease it up a bit for now. Finally, I mentioned Bran's cauldron a minute ago, but I just want to emphasize that that is another one that we really need to go back to for sure. In fact, we actually need to look at all the Welsh Bran-related mythology, particularly the Fisher King stuff. We've touched on it a bit here and there, but George is really doing a ton of Fisher King symbolism with the Starks, especially Bran. So if we want to look for King Bran foreshadowing, well, that's definitely the place to start. And I think that's where I'll start, too. King Bran. My loose plan is to tackle each topic with a separate podcast. Maybe more. You never know. You know how these things go. And King Bran seems like the best one to start with. My End of Ice and Fire videos were focused on the Weirwoods and Bran and the others, and the idea of King Bran tells us a lot about how those things could fit together. So hey y'all, thanks for being patient with me during my break. But please, I want to assure you of a couple things. At the exact time when so many other Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire channels seem to be running out of steam and out of content, 
I will be dishing out more of the kind of mythical and symbolic analysis which you have come to know me for. As you know, you can only chew on the main storylines of the book so many times. You can only do so many reread podcasts, guys. But the layers of myth and symbolism run ever deeper, and these things are the bread and butter of mythical astronomy. The podcasts and YouTube channels, which are more centered on the books, are very smartly coming through the show endings for clues about the books, as will we, but we'll be doing so with the advantage of having done all this symbolic analysis over the past few years. Think about it. I mean, like, I didn't predict King Bran, basically no one did, but we have already done a ton of research on Bran's symbolism, so now we can quickly comb back over it and try to understand it in the context of King Bran, or King Weirwoodnet as it may be. Everything I've been saying about Euron as a potential Knight's King for the endgame, I'm not pulling this out of my ass, as you all know, but relying on the Euron research that we already did that casts him as a dragon-riding Night King figure, and so on. So thanks again for your steadfast support. This dragon is back in the saddle, the custom-made Tyrion-designed dragon saddle that we'll all be seeing in TWoW, of course. And I will see you again soon for some King Brand talk. Ta-ta for now.